Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. From KQED. You're listening to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. This week, the United States marked a grim milestone. More than 200,000 deaths from the coronavirus pandemic. Against this backdrop, Department of Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar moved to bar the national health agencies, including the Food and Drug Administration, from signing off on any new rules without his consent. Azar's sweeping declaration, called by some as a power grab, would affect regulation of the nation's foods, medicines, medical devices, and other products, including vaccines. That's according to a September 15th memo obtained by the New York Times. We're going to talk about the federal response to the pandemic and how the nation is faring in its fight against COVID-19. Joining us is James Hamlin, physician and staff writer for The Atlantic and co-host of the Social Distance podcast. His most recent book is Clean, The New Science of Skin. Welcome, Dr. Hamlin. Good to have you. Thank you for having me. We also have Dr. Uh, Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo with us. Uh, She is professor and chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at UCSF's School of Medicine. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Bibbins-Domingo. Thank you. Thank you. And let me begin with you, if I may. And let me begin by getting your reaction, if I could, to uh, what I had just mentioned about uh, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar uh, actually um, saying that the national health agencies uh, really ought to come under his signing off, uh, whether it's FDA or whatever. Uh, It's being called a power grab. I'm just wondering what your reaction is to it. Yeah, I think the the, the main challenge uh, throughout this pandemic is uh, for uh, the public to be able to look to our leaders and to uh, uh, trust in the decision-making process. And I think when you see these uh, type of political maneuvering and when you hear inconsistent messaging from our from our leaders, I think that is the challenge really is that it places uh, the trust of the public in jeopardy. And all that we know about um, uh, what we've learned from the public's perceptions of the vaccination that is coming down the road of various policy interventions is that the public's trust is the one thing that we are lacking and the one vital thing to uh, to be in place for us to move forward safely. Yeah, I want to talk with you more about trust as this segment progresses, but uh, let me go to, uh, if I may, uh, our other guest for just a moment here, James Hamlin. And James Hamlin, I'm interested in getting your response to something I signed off uh, on that is on the air uh, just yesterday. That has to do with some a couple of significant things that occurred in Ohio at one of the uh, uh, rallies that President Trump was leading. That was just on Monday night. And, and I'm talking, of course, about uh, the fact that the, that, that the president went into some detail about how, uh, I'll use his language here, um, that, that there's, there's no vulnerability to uh, uh, to COVID-19. I mean, it was extraordinary language. He seemed to say that young people are immune and that's simply not the case. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, as someone who has been right on top of this for so long now, uh, what your response was to that? I mean, there were, especially coming on the heels of the Bob Woodward book. Um, yeah, I think that the, the response to statements like that is best handled now by simply, uh, ignoring them, realizing that you have a completely unreliable narrator who um, is, for whatever reason, with, you know, without speculating, giving dangerous uh, false statements about 
really important public health information about the basic science of it. And, um, you know, there are times I think that as journalists, we've been threading the needle between do we need to, to debunk claims um, you know, and, and hash out ad context and hash out gray areas. Sometimes that's really valuable. But when you move into a space where you are making blatantly false statements, which the entire scientific and medical community would condemn as dangerous, not just disagree with, not say are false, but say, you know, that sort of misinformation will lead to people getting sick, potentially dying. Um, you know, I don't think we can understate uh, how profoundly consequential that is in a moment like this, uh, you know, in American history. Well, here's the president of the United States saying the coronavirus affects virtually nobody. I mean, it's extraordinary to think about that, and especially in light of the fact that uh, he was suggesting that those under 18 uh, have immensely strong immune systems, uh, and this is after... Uh, we have got numbers about about a half million kids, in fact, with COVID and young people as the main transmitters. But I want to get to something else that was quite significant in that Ohio appearance by the president. Uh, and that was a Republican lieutenant governor, John Houston, standing out in front of the crowd and saying, wear masks and getting booed. I mean, he took out a mask that said Donald Trump in it. He said, you can wear this mask. And he was getting booed heartily. Uh, I mean, the response to this is, uh, it, it, it almost defies uh, trying to find language to react to it, but I'd like to hear what you have to say, because he's influencing people in large numbers, influencing them to sit there and transmit to one another in large numbers so right. by uh, crowds that shouldn't even be in those numbers together and gathering. He, yeah, he clearly holds a lot of sway over this audience. They will believe and follow um, what he says, uh, you know, uh, seemingly without question on any issue, no matter the contradiction um, from any outside uh, entities, that there is a, a cult-like psychology to it. So he also there has the power here to really help people by simply wearing a mask, by simply not contradicting his own his own health experts and the basic facts. If he could, if he could simply manage to do that, he would be doing a, 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 a much less of a disservice to the American people. And he seems unable or unwilling even to do that. Let me go back, if I may, to you, Dr. Bibbins Domingo, on this. I want your response as well. What these kind of um... Uh, what, what they reveal, what they portend when you have the president minimizing the threat and continuing to minimize the threat and calling, for example, the CDC head, Robert Redfield, confused and contradicting him on the time uh, of the virus, uh, excuse me, of the vaccine, uh, not being ready till mid to late 2021 is what Dr. Redfield said. And the president, again, contradicted that. Um, I mean, we're dealing with some territory that is not only difficult territory, to put it mildly. I, I mean, I, I find myself struggling just with language. It's ineffable to try to describe what the response is to this. Uh, it's as if um, the president is saying there's going to be a vaccine ready in a matter of weeks when you've got heads of uh, CDC and uh, our chief medical officer saying just the opposite, totally antithetical to that. Yeah, it, it's it's really unprecedented, and I, I think the the impact will will be quite long lasting. I think it's it, it's it's um, it's important to know um, 
how much uh, the CDC has been uh, a really the hallmark of trying to understand uh, the science behind public health for so many years, and really the model for how many in the rest of the world look to, uh, to building public health programs and to regular communication when the science is just emerging and how we can use our understanding of the latest science um, to uh, design uh, evidence-based public health uh, practice. And I think uh, the regular undermining uh, of, of the CDC, um, of the other agencies um, in the government um, that are in charge of the pandemic is really, um, it, it, it erodes trust as we already said, but really um, it is particularly challenging at a time when we are still learning about this virus. We need to have, uh, be able to have the scientific discourse and to be able to have our, uh, our scientific institutions communicate um, about what we know at the science about at the present time and what that means for our application to public health or our application to the design of, of vaccinations and other types of things. And to have that uh, being eroded uh, on a consistent basis, either in the political maneuverings behind the scenes or in the outright uh, comments, uh, challenging statements of these leaders, I think is really is really harmful and will be long lasting. And political, I think, is the key word here, as you're saying. Uh, this is a president who said 34 times the virus will disappear and has argued that blue states are uh, the reason we're behind in high number of cases of coronavirus and that he's doing a phenomenal job. Uh, but I'm also struck uh, by something else that has emerged here. Dr. Hamlin, and that is um, the president talking about herd immunity, um, especially identifiable with the advocacy of White House advisor Scott Atlas, who uh, has absolutely no expertise in infectious diseases, but it seems to have uh, caught his attention and uh, he seems to think there's uh, some merit there. Seems He seems like he's an advocate. Um, from, from my reporting on that, I, I couldn't go so far as to say that Dr. Atlas is an advocate. There, there were some reports um, I believe the Washington Post that uh, that relied on anonymous sources that said that the term herd immunity was being thrown around uh, in planning discussions. I know I know President Trump has alluded to it. It's a complex topic that derives from immunization policy, and it refers to uh, the ways in which people are vaccinated that creates immunity across a population such that there can't be significant outbreaks. Uh, some people are, are misusing the term and saying that it is, you know, um, could be a sort of strategy, which it's not. Uh, you know, it's, it's a concept from vaccination. It will be useful as we roll out this vaccination to the vaccines as they become available to think about, you know, who needs to get vaccinated first most effectively uh to most effectively use the doses that we have initially to try to create immunity across populations but it's not really relevant right now um well excuse me isn't it also true that there really has in fact i think you interviewed howard foreman on this uh, who's a health policy mm -hmm. professor at yale uh, there really has been no disease that has had full uh herd immunity uh, you get lower levels and you get uh, outbreaks that are bigger or smaller you get waves really Right. That's not how uh, diseases tend to move through uh, through populations. It's a it's a term for, from vaccination. Um, so you would continue to see to see waves um, for for a long time, foreseeably, if there were simply no vaccine 
And the, the really important thing here is I think there's, an, there's a basic idea that a certain number of people in the population are going to, to get infected anyway. And the, the you know, erroneous school of thought is why not just have people get infected earlier, get it over with, get to our place of herd immunity and, and move on with life. And the fact is that that just wouldn't happen, that you would have more people get infected. Well, we heard um, Rand Paul arguing with Dr. Yeah. Fauci about this, uh, didn't we? Right, right. It's a seductive kind of idea because no one wants shutdowns. Every, no one wants to be to be stuck at home, you know, away from, from family members and not doing the things that we love in life. You know, um, no one's advocating. <laughs> Everyone wants this to end immediately. And I, I think that's really important to note, but, but that if you simply went back to old ways of life, you would see many more people get sick than if we can continue to, you know, moderate, do the best we can to distance and slow the spread of this until we have a vaccine and until we have better treatments. You know, we can expect that, that month over month, hopefully not year over year, but year over year, as, it's, as we're turning into our second year of this, um, treatments will get better. It will be a more survivable um, condition that doctors will get better and at, at treating this. And you know, even if a length of stay in a hospital decreases from say 10 days to seven days, that's very significant in one person's life. You know, So every case that we can, we can prevent or delay is valuable. Again, James Hamlin is a physician and staff writer for The Atlantic, co-host of the Social Distance Podcast. His most recent book is Clean, The New Science of Skin. And we're talking about how the United States is faring in its battle against the COVID pandemic. One other footnote about uh, uh, so-called herd immunity. A lot of people point to Su to Sweden, and uh, I've, I've learned from James Hamlin, from Dr. Hamlin, that uh, Sweden still bans gatherings of 50 or more people, and uh, they actually... Uh, uh, have uh, bans on religious gatherings and concerts and theatrical and cinema performances and all of those things. So the idea that everything is just out there uh, that some people have is misguided. Uh, I'll go back to the thing that you brought up, uh, Dr. Bibbins-Domingo, and Kristen Bibbins-Domingo, again, is professor and chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at UCSF School of Medicine. This is a question of trust because in, in high-risk neighborhoods uh, where transmission is particularly high, even in counties that seem to have better control over things. And I'm talking, of course, about particularly here uh, in the Bay Area, uh, I'm thinking about San Francisco and the high number of Latinx uh, cases, about 50%, in fact, of them in San Francisco. That's only 15% of the population. Um, you, you have um, a need for trust, and a need for trust particularly with the medical community. Um, now I know at UCSF you've worked a lot on that, and I'd like you to sort of describe what you've done. What, what you see as positive in it. Sure. So, um, so yeah, so um, trust, trust is important. And I think it's important to recognize that um, COVID-19 has affected uh, many of our poor and minority communities in the Bay Area, Latino communities in particular in San Francisco um, and, and in Oakland, but also African-American, Pacific Islander. Um, these are communities that um, already uh, have a, a level of health disparities, um, a greater burden of other types of illness, as well as has um, uh, a history of, uh, of um, having interactions with the healthcare setting that doesn't continue to promote trust in health, healthcare, uh, science, and medicine. And so then when you layer on this pandemic uh, on top of this, 
um, and you uh, now um, watch these communities really being disproportionately affected. If you see the milestone of 200,000 deaths across the US and realize that African-Americans make up a quarter of those deaths, even though they're 13% of the population, that in the Bay Area and across California, that Latinos make up uh, the majority still of the, um, of the cases, um, even though there are much lower representation in the population, the pre-existing uh, level of mistrust that medicine and science is going to take care of the needs in these communities um, is now uh, amplified that mistrust because of um, what everyone is observing, which is the really disproportionate impact. So what we need many a lot of more. Us that UCSF have been doing, yeah. uh, I think, has been really working in close partnership with the community organizations. And I think this started early on in the pandemic with a really strong partnership with the Latino Task Force in San Francisco. Um, and I think uh, that partnership is what um, allowed us to go into the Mission District and to bring testing into the Mission District in this model that uh, that uh, Dr. Havlier at UCSF and others have called test to care model so that it's not just testing, but also engaging with community organization uh, to actually do the type of follow-up care that's often required uh, to make sure that people uh, can in fact engage in our public health recommendations to isolate and quarantine, which is more difficult when people need to be out and working. The partnership has led to us being able to, uh, to do testing to understand disease and transmission better in uh, San Francisco and across the Bay Area. And it's also led to um, giving information back to these community organizations so that they can also advocate successfully for the types of policies like protection of wages when people have to isolate and are unable to work, which I really think are important for um, enabling uh, communities to actually be able to engage in the type of public health recommendations that, that we're making. And let me just say that, uh, th that we really need more testing. Uh, Grant Colfax in San Francisco, uh, Health director has done a lot and health directors throughout the Bay Area, but uh, in, in these underserved communities, in these uh, indigent communities and certainly communities of color, we still have dramatically lower numbers of tests and we need to really bring them up in number. And speaking of numbers, I want to give out the number because I know many of you may want to join us with questions or comments. We're talking about the troubling federal response to the COVID-19 pandemic and what we can expect in terms of cases in the coming months. And we'll get into that as well. And certainly local concerns uh, and concerns in communities that are underprivileged and communities of color. We do welcome your involvement in the program and you can join us now at our toll-free number. I invite you to do that. The number to call 866-733-6786. Again, please join us at 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. You're listening to Forum on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. Welcome to Forum. We're talking about the troubling federal response to the COVID-19 pandemic and what we can expect in terms of cases in the coming months. And we do invite your involvement. And if you have questions or comments or would like to join us, you can do that now by calling in toll-free at 866-733-6786. 
That's 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email us, forum at kqed.org. We're talking with James Hamlin, who's a physician and staff writer for The Atlantic and co-host of the Social Distance Podcast, and Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo, who's professor and chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the UCSF School of Medicine. I'd just like to pursue one other thing with you, Dr. Bibbins-Domingo, if I could. When we're talking about Latinx and African-American populations, we're really talking about populations that uh, have come to the attention of disproportionate numbers because of crowded housing, because of fear of losing work. Uh, There are many reasons, uh, undocumented, of course, as well. Uh, So we need much more easy access of testing for people who are in those situations, but we also need places for them. I mean, whether it's a hotel room or what it is, there has to be an infrastructure, doesn't there? Strong infrastructure? Yeah, Yes, exactly right. Um, I think the the issue that uh, that we're seeing is that that cycle of the um, essential worker, the people who are doing low wage frontline work, um, being exposed in work environments because they are not because people are out and not sheltered at home, also in congregate living settings. But then taking those that exposures and bringing it home to more densely populated um, uh, living environments, housing environments. That's worse here in the Bay Area because of our affordable housing crisis, and um, and that cycle is uh, is really what's uh, what is fueling a lot of what what we are are seeing. You are absolutely right. We need more testing. And uh, not only do we need more testing in general uh, during this pandemic, but we need testing that is directed really to communities where transmission is highest. We always talk about the positivity rate and it tells you whether we're under testing, but we also have to think of that at a really very, very local level and say, it's great that San Francisco is doing well, but we also have to make sure that the areas where transmission is still high in San Francisco are also doing well and direct our resources like testing and other of the, the the types of services that are needed to in order to achieve the public health practices that we want uh, to happen. You bring up the issue of housing. Um, I, I think it's it's great uh, that um, that there has been a response uh, to thinking about how to make hotel rooms available when people need to isolate or quarantine. That has been a really important feature in in our pandemic response. I think you see around the Bay Area that that response has been better when we've engaged with local community leaders to understand what the barriers are to even using those types of of isolation and quarantine uh, locations, because oftentimes there are barriers to doing that in the community. Your program, KQED, has highlighted the really nice uh, way in which um, we've responded to trying to think more long-term of getting people who who are unsheltered to have shelter during this time, which I think is also a key part of this. But what we have to be doing is now thinking about more sustainable solutions. And I think um, my hope is that the partnerships that are really essential to both the acute response, particularly in the communities with the highest need and highest transmission, can be translated into a more sustained response to thinking across our sectors to what do we need in order to uh, achieve better health um, more in the long term as well. Uh, Well said. And let me read uh, some comments that are coming in that are also Many of them well said. Uh, this actually, we've been talking about trust, and here's a listener who says, there's no way I would get the Trump vaccine. 
Another listener says all these com- those complicit in Trump's streamlining of our pandemic task force in 2018 and then lying to us about dangers of COVID-19 should be charged with crimes against humanity. This has been a colossal failure by Trump and his administration at the expense of American lives. Some strong sentiments here, to put it mildly. Here's Susan who writes, Trump once said that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose supporters. Now it seems he won't lose supporters even when he's willing to shoot them by discouraging them to protect themselves with masks. And Denise says, I feel that the best words to describe the current resident of the White House is cult leader, and cult members will never believe or recognize the truth about the COVID virus. And those of you who defend the president, please feel free to express yourself here. Uh, I'm going to go to a question, though, from a listener named Ned. And James Hamlin, Dr. Hamlin, I'm going to ask you to respond to Ned. He writes, in February, the FDA's poor decision in only focusing on the CDC to make a test Hello. kit. Hello. Can you I'm guys sorry? hear me? we got some crosstalk there. Uh, uh, in February, the FDA's poor decision in only focusing on the CDC to make a test kit and then the CDC's incompetence in getting a test kit, but uh, out destroyed the country's chances to contain the virus in early hotspots. How important were these factors in containing the virus and why don't these factors get more attention? Um, early testing? You know, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities. Sorry, there's a buzzer. There's going to be a lot of opportunity to litigate early responses uh, to who could have done what better. Um, and yet right now, we need to focus on getting rapid testing out and approved and making sure it's vetted appropriately. Um, it, it, we absolutely could have moved more quickly on testing and the exact degree to which that would have changed the course of the pandemic. Um, you know, I'm... I'm <laughs> hesitant to think that it would have just because of the disinformation uh, and um, downplaying of numbers that continued from 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 the, the White House, but uh, that in 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 the hands of you know a capable leadership and with a real interest in in transparency and, and containing the virus could have very well led us at least to be more meticulous and to be more. Uh, <laughs> specific in how we were rolling out shutdowns, whereas instead we sort of had to flip this switch and just say, well, you know, everybody in entire large cities just shelter in place indefinitely, uh, you know, which is not an ideal situation. Usually you can have more uh, mm-hmm. concrete and, and targeted plans for how uh, and exactly when people need to to shelter in place. What about um, the example of Germany? Uh, I'm struck by the fact that uh, uh, they had full shutdowns that led to major caseload drops uh, and ended with an ability to implement widespread testing and tracing to contain cases before they actually turn into outbreaks. Uh, All this done within a specific time frame. I think you could argue that supporting that would be maybe make more sense. And I think you do argue this, don't you, in one of your articles in The Atlantic. If you did this in a couple of weeks and just had a total shutdown, uh, as opposed to being in this limbo where you open up and then you find you have to shut down again and then you open up and so forth. I mean, this is maddening. This is like being in Dante's Inferno or something. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's very frustrating and, and difficult for everyone. Um, it's it's at least a possibility that I've, that I've explored, you know, I, and... You know, I heard from uh, in email correspondence with Dr. Dr. Fauci a couple weeks ago. He was saying we really need to get our national case numbers down to about ten thousand, and we've been writing at about forty thousand a day at that point, and now we're we're creeping up. Last I saw was forty eight thousand. So the logical end point there, the only way that you could 
cut your your case counts by by 75% in a matter of a couple of weeks would be a complete shutdown. We've not seen that sort of drop at any point. Uh, I'm not suggesting that's what we should do. And actually, we wouldn't be capable of it because we don't operate our, uh, you know, we have a much more localized uh, state oriented systems of public health. Uh, you know, there are good things about that and there are bad. Um, but one basic fact of it is, is we're not going to have a national mandate that every place does exactly the same thing. So that's part of our part of our issue is we've we've seen uh, abilities of certain cities to to really clamp down and shut down and drop their case counts pretty quickly. But um, people people move across the country, go to places where things aren't shut down and our national numbers end up looking like this long, bleak plateau. Well, there's a. Uh... A doctor named Stephen Thomas, who I know you've interviewed, an infection disease expert at State University, upstate New York, uh, who says you got to play chess, not checkers. It's an interesting metaphor to use. He's talking about, in other words, a group of practices that minimize the spread. You use drugs, you use behavior, you use whatever you can, more masks. Uh, and by the way, flu shots would be in order here for many people. But the, the usual things, distancing um, and, uh, well, wearing a mask, of course. But... Uh, it also talks about living like you are contagious. Uh, and, and that's, I think, a useful thing to think about. Someone coughs or someone sneezes, immediately exhale. But, you know, think of yourself as uh, uh, constantly as best you can, minimizing uh, unnecessary contributions uh, of the virus to the air around you, because these are indeed what we have to be so concerned about now and what is being downplayed in the politicizing. Yeah, you know, honestly, for as complex as so much of this is, if every single person were really able to behave as though they were emitting virus all the time and thinking about their breath and thinking about how close they're getting to other people and just being conscious of making sure you're not infecting other people or doing things that might lead other people to be infected, um, that would leave us in a place where we, our case counts would be extremely low. I can't say it would be totally gone, um, but that that is probably just a key idea that when you're, you're doing so much of the distancing and masking, just thinking about, imagine that I am, uh, you know, putting virus out into the world. How do I, how do I go about my life as best possible without, you know, getting anyone else sick. Can I Even if you're to... not feeling anything, you've had no high-risk contacts, just try to live like that as best you can. I'd like to hear uh, you weigh in on this, if I could, Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo. Yes, I, I totally agree. And I, I, I really, uh, really like this this article from James. I, I think that um, the, the challenge in the pandemic is that, you know, we, we're going to be living with this virus for a while. Right. Um, and uh, and we have to adopt all of those small personal behaviors that all contribute um, in a large way to making um, our own environments ourselves safe, but also the environments and the people we come in contact safe. And that's got to be the hallmark of the way we start thinking about it. And it really really is the, the challenge in the way we have been thinking about it is this extreme of opening versus closing. Um, and uh, I think is it's what uh, really 
sets us up for that zigzag response uh, that we've seen in the cases. Um, we have never gotten down to anywhere close to the level uh, of case counts that other countries that have taken some aspect of a response incredibly seriously across their entire uh, country. We've never done that um, and uh, as a country. And I think that, um, that we have to start taking all of these, these little things that we each personally can do and that we can do locally and in our local communities. And those are the things that are going to add up on over time. I will also say that, um, that uh, as much as we're fretting about the national response, it is worth uh, shouting out, I think, our regional response here in the Bay Area, our response here in San San Francisco, where we've we have had have had a lot of successes, and I think in the absence of, of a, a clear federal response, we have to really um, empower our local and uh, regional leaders, both our elected officials as well as our community leaders, to think about all of the actions we can do to keep our own communities safe. Well, thank um, you for that reminder about keeping the focus on the local. Uh, I think it's extremely important, and I also think it's important to tell you that this is a fundraising period for KQED Public radio and for more information about how to support kqed go to kqed.org you're listening to forum and i'm michael krasny and i'm going to go to uh, some more of your comments that are coming in here uh, a lot of them are um, uh, strongly anti-trump comments uh, if someone wants to defend the president you're certainly welcome to join us with email or phone calls uh, frank writes donald trump minimizes all aspects of the pandemic this is consistent with something from a national adversary such as russia which has ill will toward the u.s alicia says i have neighbors who have recently uh recovered from COVID. they are latino and i notice that they frequently have prayer meetings in their home they shared with me that faith will protect us from getting a bad case of COVID. none of them wear masks another listener noel tweets anyone who would listen to a real estate con man over the medical community should not be taken seriously another example of the general public's lack of understanding of science and uh a listener writes the root problem is a large number of people who will do what trump says no matter how ludicrous we need to know how to do mass intervention to cure uh, he's not talking about covid uh, i think he's talking about um derangement uh, as some call it to get back to this uh, notion of herd immunity, because people often bring up Sweden, and a listener tweets, I'm going to go to you, this is James Hamlin, uh, a listener says, Sweden also has greater social cohesion and trust in government, so they voluntarily did the things the government asked them to do. And when I started asking you about, you know, uh, the lieutenant governor of Ohio saying, wear a mask and people booing him and everything, this gets right to the heart of this listener's tweet. There is less social cohesion here or less of maybe some would call it more rebelliousness or contrariness. That's American. Right. I, uh, yeah, well, we're seeing a lot of cohesion too. You know, I mean, I, I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't want to downplay. I, a lot of people have been just re really vigilant and, and, uh, great about following public health directives and, and are doing their part. I'd say most Americans are. Um, but it does certainly make it easier, you know, it requires less legislative action, less actual enforcement of saying we're going to shut, you know, no restaurants are allowed to have tables within X number of feet of one another. If restaurants simply do it, you know, or if you, you simply push people outside or if people are just being vigilant about hand washing and distancing and, um, not getting and not going out when they're sick you know the more of that that happens organically because people care about their communities and and other other citizens and not spreading the virus you know the lower case counts stay 
the less becomes necessary to actually enforce things like that at, at a policy level. And the more that then your policymakers are free to focus on things like how do we scale up, you know, testing and um, how, how do we invest in research into, into vaccines and focus on, on forward thinking measures. And that seems to be the way that countries with, as you, you know, you suggest maybe more social cohesion or simply a more national, uh, nationally, federally centric uh, public health system have, have been successful. And if I could go back to you, Dr. Bibbins Domingo, we're coming to the close of this hour, uh, but I'm interested in hearing what you have to say just about the lack of certainty in so many areas. We're still learning an immense amount because we don't know an immense amount about this virus. Yeah, I, I think that's that's exactly right. Um, uh, we, we've talked a lot about the political process. One thing that has been uh, really remarkable during this time is how um, uh, scientists of all different, uh, with all different uh, types of tools, um, have come together to really tell us over an incredibly short period of time how much, uh, much, much more about how this virus uh, does its work, how it infects, um, what types of things are predisposed to uh, worse outcomes, what types of things we can do to, um, to develop new treatments, how do we think about um, immunity in this context. And I think, um, I think it's, it's really remarkable um, what we have achieved actually um, in, in learning about the virus and parlaying that information into therapeutics and other types of public health interventions. Um, and unfortunately that sometimes gets lost because we're, we're, we're fearful, it's a dangerous time. We'd like all of this to happen more quickly, but there has been really extraordinary science. And I think that does give me hope uh, that that we will we will get through this, um, but I think we're we're in a challenging time when the messaging about that is much more challenging to to understand. On that note of hope, uh, what Emily Dickinson called the thing with feathers. Uh, let me uh, conclude this uh, and thank both of you very much for being with us uh, for this whole segment of forum. Again, uh, Kristen Bibbins Domingo is professor and chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at UCSF School of Medicine. And James Hamlin is physician and staff writer for The Atlantic and co-host of the Social Distance Podcast. And we are here with you every Monday through Friday, 9 to 11, and an hour is repeated in the evening. And we always invite you to let us know what you think about what you hear on Forum or would like to hear on Forum by emailing us, forum at kqed.org. Tomorrow during this hour, we're going to talk about colleges and particularly about community colleges and the CSU system. And stay tuned for an hour with Mina Kim. And for all of us here at KQED Public Radio, take care. Stay safe. I'm Michael Kresge. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snapchat Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.